morning, everybody, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Karen Weaver. The Council for Independent Colleges, aka the CIC, is a collection of 766 nonprofit independent colleges and universities that, quote, strives to enhance public understanding of independent higher education's contributions to society, unquote. In 2018, the CIC undertook an unprecedented survey into the role that college athletics plays on their campuses. CIC President Richard Ekman described the CIC and its athletics programs like this. Discussions of intercollegiate athletics, whether in the popular press or in academia, are often dominated by large public universities, extensive athletics enterprises, and their connections to professional sports for good or ill. These programs, however, are not the entirety of intercollegiate athletics at American colleges and universities. Independent colleges and universities whose athletic programs primarily compete at the Division II and Division III levels are an important part of the American college sports landscape. Decisions at these institutions about the ways athletics should complement and enrich students' academic experiences are far less likely to be swayed by the number of student athletes who go on to professional sports careers. Yet few studies have been conducted on the progression of smaller independent institutions' commitment to athletics. So my guest today is one of the co-authors of this landmark study, Welch Suggs. In addition to being a former Division III college athlete himself and a former journalist for the Chronicle of Higher Education covering college sports, Welch is an associate professor in journalism and media at the University of Georgia. Welch, welcome to the podcast. It's great to be with you, Karen. Thank you. So describe for us a typical CIC school and their athletics program. Sure. So if we think outside the mainstream, the CIC membership mostly consists of colleges in the NCAA's Division II and Division III, as well as quite a number of schools that belong to other associations like the National Association of Intercollegiate Athletics or the National Christian College Athletic Association. There are one or two others. A few of their members are the larger Division I schools that people may have heard of, like Davidson College or the University of Richmond. But by and large, we're talking about smaller private schools, some of which are very selective and have a national reputation, uh, others of which are much more regional in their focus. But I think the key difference to pick up on one of the themes that you just highlighted is that for them, sports is not about getting on the front page or even on the sports page. It's about driving enrollment. Uh, colleges for years have used athletics as a strategy for trying to get as many students as possible on campus because they're driven primarily by tuition dollars. They don't, by and large, have large endowments. And while some of them, sports is just a big part of the campus culture, a lot of them are using sports specifically as a recruiting tool. Uh, to go get that kid who might decide they want to go to the University of Georgia or Penn State, but then all of a sudden they talk to a coach and realize they could keep playing ball at a Division II or Division III school and maybe get a break on tuition or a partial athletic scholarship, and then they're excited and sign from there. Demographic-wise, just give us a sense of the total enrollment at an average CIC school and then maybe what the average size of an athletics program might look like. Sure, I don't have numbers in front of me, but I'm going to say that if you think of a college that has somewhere between 700 and 3,000 students, undergrads overall, 
and an athletic program that is probably somewhere between 15 and 25% of the student body. Those would be a typical representative number. One thing we found in the 2018 version of the report that you referenced where we went and looked at the growth of athletic programs over time is that both in terms of numbers and representation with this group of schools, uh, athletes have grown as a portion of the student body and athletics has become a more important recruiting tool for a lot of institutions. So that's one thing that I think a lot of people don't necessarily understand. And as we continue the conversation, we'll talk more about what COVID-19 might mean in relation to all of that. But one of the things the report noted was the face of college sports at these institutions has changed considerably but sports overall have, be, have grown to become an important factor in institutional character and, as you mentioned, enrollment management. Tell us some more about the evolution of college sports over the last 10 plus years. Well, I think there's been a couple of interesting trends. Um, one of them is that colleges have started uh, specific teams in order to appeal to students from specific regions of the country. So for example, uh, lacrosse is a big sport in the mid-Atlantic and Northeast. Those places, if we're thinking about DC or Philly where you are or Boston or Baltimore also tend to have a fairly affluent population. So a whole lot of schools, especially down here in the South have started adding lacrosse teams specifically to engage both those students and also the sport lacrosse I'm thinking of specifically um, has grown in the South as well in areas like Charlotte and Atlanta and Birmingham and so on and so forth. So schools are responding to that. Field hockey is the same way. I mean, who knew that Louisville, Kentucky is a field hockey mecca, but it <laughs> is. And so my alma mater, Rhodes College in Memphis, added a field hockey some years ago to try to attract uh, students both from Louisville and as those other regions of the country as well. So that's one big trend I would mention. This is what my colleague Jim Hearn here calls the greenfield sports of soccer, field hockey, lacrosse, those other big sports that aren't well known outside of the kind of classic Northeast prep school environment, things like that. Uh, the other trend, um, this is anticipating, I think a little bit where the conversation is going, but has been adding football because a lot of these schools tend to skew female in their overall student population. So they also believe, um, and this hasn't really been empirically demonstrated, but this is where I wrote my dissertation on, is that a school where the student population skews too heavily in one direction by gender, either male or female, and I apologize for using the binary terms, but this is where the discussion has been in the past, but the feeling has been among admissions officers that if you don't have a population that's somewhere in the neighborhood of 50-50 or 55-45, then you're going to lose students, either uh, incoming students who don't want to be in that kind of environment or people who are there who decide they've got better things to do on the weekend, so that mm -hmm. weekend's ties to the student body. So you bring in football, you create a campus atmosphere on the weekends, and you also bring in a whole lot of guys, to be quite honest. And so that was something that we focused on with the report that we just came out with this week from CIC, looking at the impact of adding football at those kinds of institutions. Well, go ahead and talk a little bit about that, because quite frankly, I was surprised at how short-lived the bump is in, in those campuses that have decided to make that kind of investment. Right. So what we did, um, and I should point out a couple of things, is my other co-authors, Jim Hearn and Jennifer May Trifoletti here at the Institute of Higher Education at the University of Georgia, um, we put together a model, um, and I won't get into the math, um, 
because it would make really bad radio or podcasting. But um, we use a difference and differences model to look at how colleges who had added football compared to colleges that never added the sport over basically the 21st century um, in broad terms was our model. And what we found was that when you add a football team, you get a really big spike in the first year in mail enrollment, in applications, in interest by people who all say, hey, yay, I want to join a football team. But as you point out, it's a big spike and it goes back down and sort of comes closer to the baseline. So you don't see a lot of growth in the second or third years out. And that kind of makes sense when you think about it that, you know, we're measuring not from when schools announced football, but when they actually started play. So you've got to recruit and attract a whole big team that might be 100 or 120 students in the first year. But then you don't need to replace all of them. You just replace the people who graduated and kind of go from there on out. Um, but it does bear thinking about for admissions officials and others to think that, okay, this is not necessarily going to sort of take you from this level up to this level and keep going. It's going to change the pools that you recruit from. So all of a sudden now you can recruit from the pool of students who are interested in going to a college with a football team, whether or not they happen to be fans, whether or not they happen to be players themselves, as well as the people who could care less about football in one way, shape or form. So I think that gives people a bit of a pause, but at the same time, it does say this opens up new markets. And so that we're able to sustain ourselves where we are when problems start, such as, oh, pandemics, but also, I think more broadly, everybody knew that there is a coming enrollment cliff in higher ed, and the, the college-going population is going to take a dive in the next few years, and so for a lot of these schools, sort of having more markets or more resources to draw on is going to be key. Yeah, absolutely. So, you have the two-year kind of increase and then what happens at the end of end of the two-year period and then talk a little bit about Barry College since you looked at them. Right so Barry is um, not too far away it's on the other side of the state in Rome. Um, it's a great college it's the largest college campus in the world not too many people know that um, but it's uh, just a really interesting place for a number of reasons I'm not going to turn this into an ad for them but uh, they added football it'll be six years ago now this August. Um, so when we were working on this study, we thought, you know, it'd be really nice to add a case study to this and not make it purely a quantitative exercise. And so I went over and spent a day talking to their administrators, talking to coaches and players, and it was great. Barry's very much like the college that I went to. In fact, they're in the same Division Three conference. And as it happened, I was there for the weekend. They were playing Hendricks College in Arkansas, which also had added football five years ago. Um, and they built this beautiful little stadium. They get a lot of people. It looks like a very small tailgating scene like you would see at other colleges, except the campus is completely dry. So it's, you know, at a place like Georgia, I got to confess, it's kind of a war zone if you walk through campus, not so much at a place like Barry. But they really did mirror or reflect a lot of the findings that we had. They saw a massive spike where I think they had, they were planning for something like 90 players that first year and said they had 120 or 130. Um, but their number of applications, their interests, all that stuff went up in the first year or so. And then it sort of gradually settled back to a baseline slightly above where they had been, but it was 
not a major impact, but what it did do was bring in enough students to very much justify the return on investment. You know, again, not to belabor the point, but they're not on TV. They are not making lots of money off of ticket sales. They are bringing students to campus and creating an atmosphere where people said, you know, it prevented people from going to Atlanta or going to Chattanooga or someplace else on the weekends, but kept them on campus and really kind of built a richer campus community. And even since the report came out, I've heard from a couple of Barry parents who said, yeah, my kid went there and she never would have considered Barry if it not had a football team and she wasn't even that big a fan. So I think we can interrogate a lot about the sport and whether that's healthy, but the bottom line is that it does move the needle and creates a level of stability that colleges did not necessarily have before. So you also mentioned that adding football tends to attract a different kind of student in terms of the population. Did they approach their, their enrollment strategy then by changing the markets that they went into, or was it just the kind of student from the markets they were already in? I would say more the latter. So in talking to students there, um, the first thing that the um, people I talked to, the presidents and the vice presidents were very straightforward in that a lot of faculty had concerns that they were going to be bringing in large masculine players who might have a propensity for violence or for other kinds of antisocial behavior. That did not turn out to be the case. Um, and I heard this from students who were not affiliated with the team or anything like that as well. But what it did was it allowed them to go into more schools and in some cases more affluent schools, especially in the Atlanta area, and to attract students from there who, as I said before, might not have been considering playing football in college or might have wanted to go farther from home. Barry benefits, they've got a fairly unique work study program that it's not like Berea or Warren Wilson, where students pay no tuition and work on campus or no uh, fees and work on campus, but it does offset some of their things. So they're able to get sort of a more middle class or they're able to offer some really interesting financial aid packages. So you could go to a school and have a kid who was thinking about maybe going to Vanderbilt or Duke or Chapel Hill or something like that and say, hey, guess what? You can stay close to home. You can get this great education and it's not going to cost you a whole lot of money. And so it's certainly not going to cost out-of-state tuition. So they were able to benefit quite a bit from that. And of course, in Georgia, we have the Hope Scholarship as well. So all of those things can wrap in together and make it an attractive package for those players that they were now able to get that they couldn't have before. And just briefly tell the audience what the Hope Scholarship is. Yes, I'm sorry. So the Hope Scholarship is a program in Georgia funded by the lottery that funds a significant portion of tuition at public institutions, but there's also a grant you can get if you go to a private school in Georgia, such as Barry or Emory or other places like that. It is, it was $3,000 a year the last time I checked, but I have not looked at that recently. I got it okay. Another thing that you, um, and, a, and a, a result of this effort seems to be not only were you targeting maybe a maybe more a wealthier student by adding football but the hope is also that they become and stay engaged on campus and then continue to engage as alumni and possibly give back to the institution any findings on that 
We didn't have any findings on there, Karen. I'll say anecdotally, this is something that I covered and talked to a lot of people about when I was at the Chronicle, and there are somewhat mixed results. Um, in fact, I got an email from someone else who was saying that actually retention numbers for a lot of sports, including football, at Division II, Division Three schools are not where they would like them to be. And that's where I think a lot of people are getting very nervous around the pandemic, that we're seeing so many schools cancel fall seasons, and that's going to, you know, really sunder a tie, I guess, between the these students and the institution, which I think has very broad, long-lasting um, impacts. The question is, I think, the bigger about sort of turning them into alumni that are active. This is something that uh, Bill Bowen and James Shulman looked at back in the late 90s, early 2000s with their publications from the Mellon Foundation. And what they found was that alumni or former athletes did not tend to donate at higher rates and they didn't in large part go on to uh, more munificent careers or things like that. So you can't tie things back quite that tightly as you might like to. Um, Ted Leland, who I'm sure you know, the former Stanford athletic director, once told me that football players were the worst donor prospects because they tell them, I donated my knee to Stanford and I'm not giving them another dime. <laughs> I've heard that too. That's, mm -hmm. uh, that's an interesting parallel. So you broached the subject of COVID-19 and we are really at a very uh, tenuous moment in all of higher education right now. The school is trying to figure out what their plan is going to be for fall 2020. Certainly a number of Division Three conferences and many Division Two conferences in my part of the country have already said, we can't do it. We just can't figure out a way. It's too expensive. And, and some campuses are even revisiting their original thinking about, we'll come back on ground and maybe we'll do now a hybrid or online scenario. Thinking of the research that you all have done here, what kinds of shifts do you see in the thinking around offering college sports at a time where the enrollments are if projected to go down, which means the revenues are going to go down. It is, and the revenue picture obviously is very different for the sort of wide breadth of public or smaller public and private schools around the country where they're not having to face the possibility of losing out on ticket revenue, TV revenue, and things like that. For these schools, I think, first of all, you've got to remember that coaches are often the best admissions officers you can have. They form these great relationships with students, and they inspire them to come to campus. That was certainly the case for me with my coach. Um, I had a funny conversation long ago with a lacrosse coach at Ohio State who told me how much he knew about prom dresses because he had to talk to all of his prospects about that. <laughs> and so I think that that is going to become very, it's going to be a source of tension. There's just no way about it for all the schools that have ended fall seasons already, whether it's the Ivies, the Southern Athletic Association, um, any number of them. And, you know, I think it was, it's been the right thing to do from what they've done. Um, I'll say parenthetically, I think a lot of institutional leaders have really done a poor job of communicating their rationale and reasons behind this. But I think directly to your question, what everybody is freaked out about is, number one, the summer melt. This always happens to every institution, that they will lose a few students who committed or even put deposits down in the spring. Um, 
before they get to campus. That's only going to accelerate based on everything I've seen in the media and the other information that's out there. Then with sports, it comes back to the question of what is tying the student to the school, right? So again, thinking of that example, I talked to a football player at Barry who had gone, um, he was interested to know that I taught at Georgia because that was where he was planning on going until a football coach from Barry showed up to talk to one of his teammates and start talking to him as well. And so if you don't have that, if you don't have a reason, then what's the value proposition of going, especially to a private school, especially one that has higher tuition, as opposed to saying, okay, I'm gonna take a gap year or I am going to just say, okay, football has been, I've hit the end of the road in football or baseball, whatever sport we're talking about. And I'm going to go to my local community college or a public four-year in my state, especially if my parents have been laid off or if we have other financial pressures or if I'm just going to take online courses, where's the quality proposition of that? Can't I get as good an online education from Georgia State University, say, as I would at Barry or a Swanee or a Vanderbilt or whatever? So I think these are all massive, massive unknowns, and we just don't know what this is going to mean, you know, in two weeks, much less in six months or a year. Exactly. The CIC is such an interesting collection. And as you said, it's not just NCAA schools, but it's NAIA schools. It's uh, Christian college schools. I think, is it USCAA as well? Do they have some of the, uh, the schools in that as well? That's, uh, that's right. Um, the United... States or sorry, U.S. Yeah, College Athletic Association, something like that. Yeah, I believe. Yeah, which is another postseason yes. organizing body. They're very nice people. I can tell you that. But anyway. excellent. Um, so this really gets to you mentioned earlier that the typical school in your 2018 study had about 20 to 25 percent of their population being athletes, and athletics is expensive. So if you don't have as many athletes show up and you can't feel the team because most of these associations have minimum numbers of athletes you have to have on your roster. Does that bode well, in your opinion, for the future of that team going past 2020? Are they putting themselves at risk because this particular year not not enough athletes showed up to participate? I think that's definitely going to be a long-term concern. It's not only the schools that are really you know, the tiny schools that are going to have a ton of problems here in the next few years anyway. But even if you think back, I think two years ago, Occidental couldn't finish their football season because they had too many players get injured and they um, had to forfeit a bunch of games off of their roster. I think that is certainly a possibility, especially for football, where nationally the numbers of participants have been declining a bit. Um, the evidence there is mixed. I don't want to get into the numbers too much, but certainly Numbers in a lot of states, even very popular football playing states like Texas, have gone down somewhat. And certainly in states that have lost population, they're losing that traditional football population. So are there going to be enough players to go around, frankly, in the out years? But in the immediate term, absolutely. I mean, especially there are a lot of colleges that really and truly depend on football as part of, or sports in general as part of their enrollment strategy. Erskine College in South Carolina, the Chronicle had a story about them not too long ago, but 70-some percent of their students are athletes. And I couldn't believe that until I went through and started counting some of their rosters. They have 50 people on a basketball team. Wow. So 
why would you go from, let's just say Shelby, North Carolina to Erskine College across the state line if you're not going to get that chance to play basketball? That's your main reason for going there. And I think that is going to be a hard conversation for a lot of parents, a lot of students, and an awful lot of ADs and enrollment officers in the next few years. One of the other things that all of us are dealing with too is that the changing dynamics and demographics of the actual athletes and students who come to our campuses. You know, many of our campuses built their backs on traditional upper middle income sports, primarily white, and you're seeing many of those sports starting to disappear at, at, at many levels because maybe the interest isn't there or the competition for those particular student athletes is strong and they're just not, not choosing their school. For schools in the CIC, do you see any strategies that they might um, take advantage of, maybe trying some different sports to try to identify a new generation of, of athletes that might want to come to their campuses and play? Well, they're trying to in a lot of ways. And one thing we haven't quite talked about is the fact that you know, football especially is not a diversity strategy. You know, you are not going to get more African-Americans especially showing up. In fact, in Division Three, only about 25% or so of football players are black. And so people think of football as primarily a sport where there are a lot of black people because you look at the NFL or you look at major colleges. This is, no pun intended, a different ball game. And so sport, if you're going to make that part of your diversity strategy, you got to think through exactly what that's going to look like and how you're going to support that because it's not going to happen naturally, I would say. Yeah. Um, the bigger question or the other part of the question is what other things can you try? Ultimately, you've got to make the experience as good as it can possibly be for those students who are involved. Because again, especially if we're talking about division three, you know, players can walk off of the field at any time and that's it. The coach has no leverage over them in form of a scholarship or other things like that. So you got to think about how you can make that experience as meaningful as possible to all the people involved. Um, other things they're trying, we actually had another report that we did for CIC a little bit earlier this year. And we actually did all this last year and had it ready to go in the first quarter of 2020. And then the world turned upside down. So the other thing was on esports, um, which had become extremely popular at CIC schools. Um, it is a bit of an enrollment driver, but again, excuse me, it's attracting overwhelmingly male students, and they are still very much finding their way because the way the esports have been constructed is something totally different from the way traditional NCAA or NAIA college sports are constructed. So understanding how that fits within an athletic department or a student affairs department or whatever is just the, completely the wild west. The words of many people. Absolutely. And it's an entire, another podcast for sure. Yes, I think um, so. One big thing that we, we want to wrap up on, because I know you care about it as, as do I, and that's the issues of trying to stay title IX compliant in this, in this day and age. Any mm -hmm. strategies that you witnessed inside the CIC that said they were really working to try to keep that balance on campus? So, this did not come up explicitly in a lot of what we were working on, and I wish that we had sort of tied those things together because, of course, if you were adding lots of opportunities for males who are still the overrepresented gender in athletics, you've got to do something for women as well. 
So the short answer is yes, a lot of schools have added a lot of sports for women that might include soccer or softball or competitive cheer or volleyball in some cases. A lot of these schools are not doing what Division I schools did maybe you know, a generation ago of adding rowing squads that could have lots and lots of people or equestrian teams um, where you have a whole bunch of women and a horse out there in the field. Um, I would worry, frankly, if I were a lot of these schools about whether I was in compliance with Title IX. But the flip side is that the enforcement of Title IX, and I'd love to get your thoughts on this, but really has diminished, I think, over the last, I'm going to say 15 years or so. Um, but it was never a priority for the Obama administration. Um, it has not been a priority, obviously, or for Trump. And really wasn't a prior, it was a subject of great controversy on, in the second Bush presidency. So, but what we've seen since 2000 really, so really the last two decades, is a stagnation of opportunities for women in sports. We have not seen the growth that we saw in the 90s, especially the late 90s. And so the problem is, as I said with the enforcement, the only way that Title IX compliance can be compelled is through an investigation from the Department of Education or through a lawsuit. And there are a few places I've actually seen, it was interesting before all this blew up, I did see a few cases of schools that were getting sued by women for not expanding opportunities. Mm -hmm. uh, so the University of Kentucky got sued by a bunch of lacrosse players is the key example there. And I thought maybe we might be moving into a new era of that. But the Title IX conversation in the last 10 years especially has been around sexual assault. And, you know, who am I to say that that is less important than sports, you know? Um, so I just don't think the pressure on schools to expand opportunities for women has been there. And that's a policy issue that a lot of people aren't thinking about. Yeah. And the only pressure really has come to add more sports is because it's been an enrollment driver for yep. institutions. But as you said, they've trended more female anyway. So the, the tension has been there to add more male sports. Yeah. Well, Suggs, thank you so much for joining me today to talk about this really important study. And also this, this organization that unless you're really in higher education, you're not aware that they collectively try to look at the best ways to strategy for independent privates around the country. So thank you. Absolutely. Thank you, Karen. It's a pleasure.